all the new sound equipment without being trained on how to use it. So training is tomorrow, <laughs> and, uh, and we're still fiddling a little bit, but everything has worked well, so uh, thank you to the board for allowing us the freedom to do some upgrading and, and some freedom to actually fiddle and see if it works. And so Randy made that mic work, and it's just everything's perfect. Now, this is, this is unacceptable. Sorry, Josh, I'm taking your stand. I don't know how that got mixed up. Oh, I know. Last week we had missionaries here, and they did, he didn't preach out of the ESV, so there wasn't as much weight. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. Oh, that was, that was no good. Um, no, welcome here. I am super excited. Uh, this is my favorite Sunday of the year, uh, and I hope for you too. I was having a conversation with uh, the, the Filipino pastor in town here yesterday, and we were saying that, you know, if, if you're not excited to preach on Easter Sunday, you probably should get a different job as a pastor. Uh, this, this is where everything leads to. This is what the Bible is all about. And, and you might think that it would be really easy to preach an Easter Sunday message, because it's just the gospel, right? And that's true, but the more that we study the Bible, the more that I want to fit in and the longer it wants to get, because I think there's just so many things in the Bible that are worthy of pausing and of our attention and of our focus. And so, uh, and probably because we were in Africa uh, for a few weeks, and then Jesse was here preaching last Sunday for us uh, as a missionary, is I've had like almost a month to dwell in this. And that's not a good sign for those of you who are sitting here. Is It might be a longer one, but I hope and I trust that it'll be very uh, encouraging to you. Today is, as far as the church calendar goes, the most significant date that we have. And sometimes we kind of have that little argument of, is Christmas more important or is Easter more important? Well, for the purposes of today, Easter is more important. I'll probably say the same thing about Christmas in December. But we celebrate today, as we saw in the video at the beginning of the service, Good Friday we mourn. Because we're reminded that Jesus had to go to the cross. And we're reminded of the personal implications of that. That as Jesus hangs on the cross, he's there. Not. Yes, he's there for the world, but he's there for me. And he's there for you. And sometimes it can become easy to look at it in a sense of, of it's so big. And you can say, well, Jesus died for everyone. And we can depersonalize it. But the simple truth of what the scriptures teach is, is that even if I was the only person who had sin, that Jesus would have gone to the cross for me. He went to the cross for each one of us because of his love for us. And so we mourn Friday, but we wake up Sunday celebrating because of what the scripture has taught us. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that why, that's why we celebrate. We have victory. We know that Christ has won. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to do the best and the fastest job I can do of going through the gospel message because, uh, and I say this all the time, the gospel is not something that we need to hear once. The gospel is something we need to hear over and over and over again. 
And so whether this message this morning and the passages that we look at, whether that's very familiar to you, or, or perhaps you just kind of stumbled in here this morning and, and you, these are unfamiliar passages to you, either way the truth of them is no less potent. And either way we need to remind ourselves again and again of the truth of the gospel. So let's pray and then we'll do a journey through scripture. God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, and we're going to look at that this morning through Scripture. Thank you that Jesus went to the cross willingly, sacrificially, so that we might have life. God, help us to understand the significance of that, the truth of that. And may we leave here, and when we're all finished, may we leave here with renewed hope, excitement, and passion to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. Be with us now in these moments. Amen. So, Easter, we celebrate that Jesus conquered death, and and we're going to talk about that at length in just a few minutes, but I just want to remind us of kind of the narrative of Scripture. If you go all the way back to page one, we read that God creates God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates the water and the land, and he creates the plants and the animals, and he creates uh, mankind. And he creates mankind in his image. And what that means is that we are created not looking like Jesus, not that image, but in the character of God. That we have the capacity to love and to care for, to be kind and to be gentle. And so God creates us and he breathes the breath of life into man and things are perfect. And and if you can kind of think of the Garden of Eden in a sense of, of the perfect moment that you could possibly have in your life, whatever that might be for you. Just kind of imagine that and then imagine that never stops. And then it's far better and greater than that. And that's the way that we read about mankind, but it doesn't take long. I shouldn't say that from a chronological point of view. In the Bible, it doesn't take long for us to read that Adam and Eve don't do what they're supposed to do. God creates them, and he gives them everything that they need and everything that they possibly want. And he says, he says just, just enjoy creation. But he does say, but I need you to trust that I am good. I need you to trust that I have created you and that I am worthy of your trust, and that you will be obedient to me. And so he says, eat of everything in the, tree, or in the garden except for this one tree. That's the only thing he says. And he's saying to us, will we trust that what God creates for us is good? And will we trust that God gives us boundaries because he knows what we need? Well, of course, if you know the story, you know that Adam and Eve decide that they don't trust God, that they want to define good and bad, good and evil. They want to define truth on their own terms. And so they take of that tree and they eat and sin enters the world and all of a sudden there's, there's massive consequence that comes in that and one of those is that fellowship with God the way that God intended as he created us is broken. God wanted to be in an intimate relationship with us closer than we could possibly imagine. And mankind rejected that and chose, no, I want to choose this on my own terms. 
And because of that, they were cast out of the garden. And there was a massive consequence that came in the form of death, and not just physical death, but spiritual death as well. We were created never to die. We were created to live with God for forever. And God, in a moment of his mercy and his goodness, went, I'm not going to let that happen any longer. Now, it might sound strange. You might be like, in God's mercy, he brought death? Well, otherwise, we would live for forever without a chance at redemption. But God brought in death so that there would be a finite period of that. He brought this in so he planned in his mercy. He said, I'm going to create a way. I'm going to redeem mankind. I'm going to offer the chance at salvation that they would come back and they would say, I will trust in you. I will trust in your terms, what is right and what is good, what's good, what's evil, what is true. And the rest of the Old Testament, and if if you're kind of new to the Bible, the Old Testament is kind of just over two-thirds of your Bible, starting from the beginning until you get to the book of Matthew. And the, the rest of that Old Testament is all about God's plan for salvation, saying, look, I, I am trustworthy. I'm going to make a way. And, and the promise comes in, in the very beginning. And in fact, in the first two pages of Genesis, that's, that's where we find ourselves. God says, this will not be forever. I'm going to send the Messiah. I'm going to bring someone who will redeem you back to myself. And so as we as a church, we want to read and we want to study the Bible because we believe it shows us the heart and the character of God. We believe it shows us that God loves us desperately and that he's desperately trying to show us that he is worthy of our trust and we can follow and obey him. Right now, I've been studying through the book of Exodus with with a friend of mine in Winnipeg, and it's really easy to point at the Israelites as they kind of see a miracle from God, and they go, yes, we will follow you completely, and then the next day they go, no, we no longer trust you. It's really easy to be critical of them and to go like, how do you not get it? You see all these miracles. How do you continually reject God? And you see that over and over and over where they say, yes, we'll follow you. No, we won't. Yes, we'll follow you. No, we won't. But when we really evaluate our own hearts is do we trust God implicitly and completely? Or do we step in and do we say, God, I know you say that you have what's best in store for me, but but I think I'm going to define this differently. I think I'm going to get in the way. I'm going to try and fix this situation that, that you've caused. Unfortunately, the reality is, is we as people, we're really good at meddling. And so we choose to do things our own way. And we see this happening over and over and example after example. And we continually wait, we the reader, as we read through the Bible, we wait for the one who is promised who will redeem us, humanity, back to God. Every time we have kind of hope of some great historical figure coming when God gives a promise to, to, you know, Abraham or God gives a promise to Moses or to David, some of these very significant people. We look at this and we go, okay, here's, here's what's going to happen. God's going to do this. God's going to do it. And, and no, not yet. God says, will you trust me? Do you trust that my timing is better than your timing? Man, that is a hard question to be asked. Because I think a lot of us would say, God, I trust you. I trust you completely until something goes wrong in our timeline. 
And we go, hang on, this isn't what I signed on for. And so we see these people make moral failures and, and not trusting God, choosing their own way. And you could define it as they're reaching out and trying to take truth and they're trying to define it on their own terms. And so I would ask you this, between the first few pages of Genesis and now, what's changed? I think our culture is real good at trying to redefine truth, isn't it? Redefine right and wrong. Redefine good and evil. It's become so subjective in our culture that those words, we don't even, we have to define them before we can even understand them. How many times have you heard people say something like, well, well, that's right for you, but that's not right for me. Or this is probably my biggest pet peeve is, not, pet peeve is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to you my truth as if somehow I have the authority on truth. We're really good at trying to redefine all of these things. And that's why it's so important that we here at Banff Park Church, we study the Bible because we believe that there is truth. And there is an author of truth, and his name is God. And he teaches us what is right and wrong. And he teaches us how to do what will honor both him and each other. And I would just say this. If it was possible, if we could read the law, the the first five books of the Bible, and if we could just do everything in it that God tells us to do, the world would look so much better. We would love each other and we would care for each other. We would be kind to one another. We would build one another up doesn't take long for you to jump on social media to see that that's not really the ammo of our world. The ammo of our world is, how can I build myself up at the cost of those around me? Can I, can I be the loudest and yell the most so that other people are afraid to speak, and then if I'm biggest and loudest and strongest, then I win? Well, I promise you, I've never been the biggest or loudest or strongest. Physically. No, sorry, never mind. <laughs> I try very hard to be the biggest, loudest, and strongest. And I need in those moments to pray and ask, Holy Spirit, would you shut my mouth? Would I be slow to speak and quick to listen? I need the help of God. Because if I define things, then I define them on my own terms, and my own terms never end well. And and maybe you've seen this happen before. Where people will say, you know, like, you can believe whatever you want, that's fine, I'll believe whatever I want, and and they can be compatible. But the logic of that is flawed, isn't it? At some point, if I believe something and you believe the exact opposite of that, we're probably at some kind of an impasse. And depending on how important that thing is to you, you'll probably start to stand up for what you believe, and they'll stand up for what they'll believe, and, and you'll end up with this big conflict. And we ask the question is, who is right? This is why, again, we study Scripture because God teaches us what's right. God teaches us what's true. And so all through the Old Testament, he tells us, I'm going to make a way for you to come back to me, and then I'm going to enable you to follow after me the way that God has initially intended so that the Garden of Eden can be recreated and we can be with God forever for all of eternity. We call this person Jesus Christ. All of Scripture, all of the Old Testament points us 
towards him. And so as the, as the Old Testament kind of concludes, there's just prophecy after prophecy after prophecy about what the Messiah is going to look like, his birth, his life, his death, even his resurrection. All of these things are talked about in great detail and at great length. A couple of months ago, uh, we've been reading through a, a devotional book in our house from Lee Strobel, and Lee Strobel wrote The Case for Faith, and, and he's a very intellectual kind of academic mind. And so from a mathematical standpoint, they did the probabilities that one person could fulfill even a dozen of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Now, there's way more than a dozen. But just for one person to fulfill a dozen of these prophecies in the Old Testament, they mathematically concluded it was statistically impossible. Not improbable, impossible. That apart from a divine being coming in and going, let me take care of this. And doing it his way, miraculously, it is not possible for any person to fulfill these things. And yet Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus is born in the town of Bethlehem. And, and we talk about this at Christmas. Is, is This is one of these moments where, where that alone should cause us to pause because not one of us has a choice in where we're born or how we're born, who our family is. We don't get a choice in those things. They happen to us unless you're God and you're orchestrating everything, then you cause it to happen. So real quick we realize, I guess I'm not God because I can't do any of that stuff. And so through the beginning pages of the New Testament, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different uh, men who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and they followed after him and they became his disciples and ministered along with him. All through those pages we see that not just in Jesus' birth, but in how he lived and what he did, the miracles that he performed. You see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy being fulfilled to the point where there's no possible way, if we're honest, we can look at this and we can say, no, Jesus isn't the Messiah. We look at this and we go, There's no question. He is who he claims to be. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he starts doing all these miracles, but he claims something much further. And in Mark chapter 2, and it'll be on the screen here, but if you want to flip there, feel free. In Mark chapter 2, we have this story of a, a paralytic, so someone who can't walk. And he hears about all these miracles that Jesus is performing that, that you know, blind people are seeing and that uh, other paralyzed people are being cured and they can walk and all these different illnesses, all these things are happening. And so he says, if I can just get to him. And so in the first four verses, it explains how he gets there. And in verse five, it says this, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, they're right. That's the crazy part. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven, sorry, your sins are forgiven, Or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. 
Not only does Jesus do miracles, Jesus claims right there, I have the authority to forgive sin because I am God. And so the rest of the story of Jesus is simply this, is uh, will we believe that Jesus is who he claimed he was? Will we believe that he has the authority to do what he said he would do? And so as Jesus continues his ministry, even his disciples don't fully grasp this. They follow him because they see amazing things. And sometimes they say things like, like, like who else can do this? So we're going to follow you. And it comes to a, a point where Jesus says to the disciples, who, who do the crowds say that I am? And, and, and they say, well, some say this and some say that. And eventually Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Those disciples, those that follow him, say, yes, you are the Messiah, and we're going to follow you to the very ends of the earth. And through Jesus' ministry, he still heals. He still does miracles. But his focus turns towards his own death on the cross as payment for our sins, and the disciples still don't kind of grasp that for a long time in the New Testament. And he tells them over and over, I, I have to go to the cross, and I have to sacrifice myself on behalf of you. The theological term that we use for that is, is substitutionary atonement. And I want to read a definition to you, and we're going to put it on the screen. This is from the Moody Institute. I think this is a very detailed, but yet clear and concise definition. And I think this is very crucial that we understand. So it says this. According to the scriptures, sin must be paid for. When Jesus Christ died, he suffered as a substitute in the place of and on behalf of fallen humanity. Christ's death made it possible for men and women to be declared righteous based on their faith in him. Christ's death was not merely a statement against evil or an expression of love, but a payment that satisfied God's demands. Christ's death was necessary for several reasons. First, sin alienates us from God. Those who are controlled by sin cannot please God. Jesus Christ's death made peace with God possible. Christ came not just to provide us with a godly example, but to die on our behalf and to bear the cost for sin. Second, God is holy. God's holy character requires that sin be punished. Sin makes us the object of God's wrath until the penalty of sin is paid. By laying down his own life, Jesus paid the price on our behalf, satisfying God's demands. This payment was made not to Satan, but to God. Third, the presence of sin renders us helpless. We cannot save ourselves. We do not have the will or the ability to offer anything acceptable to God on our own behalf. We not only suffer from the guilt and penalty of Adam's original sin, but also from the effects of our own sinful nature and actions. God, who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ to die in our place so that he might be righteous in dealing with sin, while at the same time providing his own righteousness to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Christ's death was more than an attempt to reverse the human course started by Adam. It served as a substitute payment for the trespasses of all mankind. This is why Jesus had to die on the cross. I might 
try and say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I, I, I didn't need someone to die on the cross for me, but just ask anybody that knows me. Just maybe, you know, if you think you're a really good person, ask your spouse, ask your kids, ask your coworkers. We know that within us lies this complete inability to save ourselves. I can't die for you because I have sin that I has to be paid for and I can't even die for me. And as, as Moody points out to us, is God was rich in mercy and so he had to deal with sin. There was only one way to do that. And so Jesus came to the earth. He lived a perfect life in submission to his Father. And he simply said it this way. I'm not going to take and redefine good and evil and right and wrong. I'm going to follow the Father. And we see that up until the point of his death where he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and the weight of sin and what is going to happen to him is just overwhelming him to the place where he's sweating drops of blood and, and he asks, Father, if there's another way, like take this from me and, and do it another way. But what does he say? Not my will, yours be done. If Adam and Eve had said that in the garden, if you or I could say that, God, not my will, yours be done. When we go through pain and heartache and uncertainty and grief and loss and all of these things, will we submit ourselves to say, God, I still trust you even though the storm around me is impenetrable and I can't see through it? Will we trust God? In the midst of all the weight and the pain and the uncertainty, will we say, not my will, yours be done. So Jesus goes through and he dies a death on our behalf. And he pays the penalty for our sin. And as they worded it beautifully in the Moody Institute, is our righteousness now does not come from me and what I do, but on what Christ accomplished for me on the cross. So there's really good news there. That means there's nothing you can do to earn salvation. There's nothing you can do so that you're good enough. Jesus already made you good enough. Is there greater news in the whole world? Jesus, by his substitutionary atonement, made a way for you to come back to God. But, we're not here to talk about his death as much as we are his resurrection. So let's flip to Luke 24. Death was a part that had to happen to Jesus. It was part of God's plan of salvation, but it wasn't the finish line. It was part of the journey. His resurrection was yet to come. So let's read verses 24, 1 to 9 of Luke. It says this. Let me just clarify real quick. Jesus is died on the cross, he's been put into the tomb and there's a group of women that were going to kind of take care of the body in, in ritualistic ways that they did back then. So it says in verse 1, but on the first day of the week at early dawn they went to the tomb, that's these women, taking the spices they had, that they had prepared, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? They remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They had been told by Jesus, I have to go and sacrifice myself. I have to die on the cross. But don't worry, I am coming back. And what that says to me is it reminds me that the disciples, they'd heard Jesus' words, but in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the hurt and the pain and the uncertainty, they had followed Jesus for three and a half years every day and, and now didn't know what to do. And they couldn't remember his words because the grief and the pain was too overwhelming for them. Perhaps you can relate. Perhaps you've been in a situation where you can't see through it. You can't think about anything else. Perhaps the grief of a lost one or that life just has turned out so vastly different than you anticipated. Perhaps it's you lived under abuse or ridicule. We all have pain and hurt in our lives that no other person fully understands except Jesus. And us, like the disciples, if we dwell only on that, then we forget the rest of the story. We forget the good news that your pain and your hurt, it has an end date. It won't always be this way. Jesus went to the cross so that you could have salvation. He rose again for this purpose so that death would be conquered. Now, I don't know how to state this clearly enough to you. But the thing that scares people more than anything else in the world, death, no longer has any hold on you as a Christian. If you were a follower of Jesus, you have nothing to fear. So much so, the Apostle Paul says it this way in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Oh, that we would believe that. And we try to hang on to this life as long as we can. And our stuff as long as we can. And we want to build as much as we can. But if we viewed it this way, the way that Paul does, if we viewed death as a promotion to go and be with the Lord, then the world would have nothing to offer us that would entice us. That we would say, man, I need that. We would just follow Jesus. How could Paul sacrifice so much? How could Paul endure so much? Because to him, he recognized that if he died, he was going to see Jesus. And the world has nothing that can compare with that. And so I just want that to sink in for a moment for you. Those that don't know Jesus, death is terrifying. Because it's the end. If you were a disciple of Jesus, then that's not the end. That's the beginning of eternity. An eternity with no pain, no sickness, no hurt. Nothing negative. We'll be in the presence of Christ. Back in the Garden of Eden, the way that God intended, we will be in relationship with him at a far deeper level than any relationship we've ever had or could understand. So we might say, as it says in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
We sang those words this morning. God is for us. Who can be against us? The psalmist says it this way, is what can man do to me? You might argue, well, they could kill you. (laughs) And you can say, yeah. And then I go be with Jesus. So go ahead. Maybe don't say go ahead. But when we think about it in this context, is this is what gave Paul the courage to do and to plant all these churches, to start these ministries, to offer his very life up, and, and many other faithful men and women throughout the course of history who sacrificed their very life for Christ. Because they knew, this world has nothing to offer me that Jesus isn't already given me. And it's going to be so much greater and so much better. So why do we celebrate Resurrection Sunday? Not just because Jesus rose again, but because if you are a Christian, you too will rise again. Again, just let that sink in. You too will rise again. You too will go and be with Jesus because according to Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 2, he says, death is conquered. Praise the Lord for that. Our God is greater. We're going to sing that again in closing in just a moment. But I want to remind us of something else here. And I said this at the beginning. The Old Testament, the Bible, is all about Jesus. It all points us to Jesus. And we see this very clearly in a few verses later here in Luke 24. There's a little section that your Bible might say something like this, on the road to Emmaus. There's two men walking and discussing all the things that have happened uh, in these recent times. Ultimate, they're talking about the death of this Jesus and then the claimed resurrection of him. And they're not sure what to make of all these things. And Jesus comes alongside them and he kind of hides them from seeing that it's him. And so he starts to talk to them. And in verse 27, he reveals himself to them and he says this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think that's maybe one of the most important verses in all of scripture. Jesus is literally declaring right there that everything written in the Bible, so when he says Moses and the prophets, he's talking the Old Testament. Everything written in there is about me. Everything points to Jesus. Everything points to the Messiah. Everything reminds us that God is a God who loves us desperately and is in battle so that he would be able to redeem us back to himself. Jesus died on the cross so that our sins were forgiven and that is necessary. He rose from the dead so that death would be conquered and so that we, Christian, you, if you are a follower of Jesus, no longer need to fear death, but you now know that when you die, you get to go be with Christ for forever. As I said at the beginning, maybe you've heard this a million times. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've heard it a million times, but you've never believed it. Or maybe you intellectually believe it, but it hasn't made any difference in your life. I just want you to go home from this morning with this challenge. Consider Jesus. Is Jesus who he claimed he was? Because if he is, then there's implications to that. 
But I also want you to think about this. Is this whole book, the Bible that we have in front of us, is a story about God being unwilling to allow us to suffer the consequences of our own choices. He loves us so desperately that he's trying to show us, I will make a way so that you can come back and you can be with me again. And 1 Timothy 2.4 says this, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is his desire for us. This is a God that loves you desperately. A God that wants to be in relationship with you. And so I want you to consider who is Jesus? What difference does he make in your life? You might think, well, there's got to be, you know, another way, kind of a, another option out there. But according to the Bible, it says this in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. We believe the Bible teaches that. We as a church want to declare that. And I hope that that gives, if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope that gives you an urgency in a sense to love everyone in your sphere, everyone that you interact with, that you love them the way that Christ loves you so that they see Jesus in you, so that they would know there's a God who loves them desperately and wants to be in relationship with them. There's a God who has made a plan of salvation through the name of Jesus Christ, that all men could be saved if they would turn to him. You might ask, how do I do that? The Bible says it very plainly in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Couldn't get more simple. Scripture tells it very plainly. We, we talk about it this way at our home and in the church here, is simply make Jesus Lord of your life. That means make him ultimate. Make him most. Everything else fails in comparison to him. What does that mean practically? That means the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we do business, the way that we do relationships, all of those things are filtered under Jesus and how to honor him with our lives. That doesn't mean we do that perfectly all the time. But that does mean that's what our goal is. And we trust and know that God is with us and that God will give us everything that we need. So much that we probably don't even want. Because his goal is not just that we have a happy life. His goal is that, he would know, that we would know that there's a God in heaven who loves us and he wants to be in relationship with us. And so I just want to end with this, is I don't know what you're going through in your life. I don't know what difficulties you have in front of you. I just know you do have difficulties because we all do. Whatever the specific challenge that you're facing, when you go to bed at night, perhaps there's something that you just have a hard time switching off in your brain. Whatever it is that you're facing, I say this all the time, Romans 8 reminds us that God has good even in the midst of that. God will take every broken situation and he'll use it for our good. 
God's good and our good are sometimes two different things. Sometimes I wish for more money, better health, that I could run faster. I don't know, fill in the blank. We have all these things of God. Life would be a lot easier if. And I feel like sometimes God looks down at us and he goes, yeah, you're right. But you wouldn't learn anything and you wouldn't know how much I love you. So whatever you're facing today, know that there's a God in heaven who loves you and wants to be in relationship with you. That he is greater than every pain and every hurt that you face today. And that one day, even though you die, you will live again. There's no greater promise that I can give you from Scripture. So I'm going to invite the music team back up. We're going to sing Our God is Greater again. We're going to declare that as a congregation, but let's pray as they come up. God, we thank you that you love us way more than we could ever grasp. As we read, as we study through Scripture, we see that everything points us towards Jesus. Everything points us towards a reminder that you made a way so that we could be free so that we wouldn't have to live with this fear of death, but that we could know that one day we can be with you forever. So God, I pray for each person here. If they have declared Jesus Christ as Lord, I celebrate with them. And if there's someone here who hasn't, I pray that they would consider who Jesus is. God, would we as a church family and, and I don't mean specifically Banff, but we as a church family all across the world, would we celebrate today knowing that, yes, you, went, you sent Jesus to the cross and that Jesus willingly died on the cross that our sins might be forgiven, but that he rose again so that death could be conquered and so that this world could throw nothing at us that you haven't already won. God, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for the hope that resurrection gives us to know that one day we will be with you in eternity the way that you intended. God, as we sing this last song, may we sing it with all our hearts that you are greater, that there is nothing the world can throw at us. God, we love you. Amen.